This is the Chronically Well podcast, episode four, with special guest Jacqueline Raposo. The last two years I've been getting sicker and I haven't been able to control that, but I'm now realizing how much around that I can change because I'm happier now than I was 20 days ago. Wow. And that literally was just from going off of social media and having to sit with my thoughts or sit with the view of whatever was in front of me. When I didn't have this screen, this frame in front of me, all of a sudden I could see the big frame in front of me. Like mm. it's the first thing I notice in the morning is like what the light is like. Interesting. Yeah. It's not, the first thing I do in the morning is not pick up my phone. The first thing I notice is like, what's the light today? What does the air feel like today? Jacqueline is our second guest in the Chronic Illness Kick-Asses series, and she is going to share with us today all about her lifelong struggle almost with chronic illness, her history in acting, how that led to journalism and writing, and all about her new book, The Me Without, A Year Exploring Habit, Healing, and Happiness. It's a fantastic book. Jacqueline has an absolutely lovely way about her. She interviews people for a living, and you can tell uh, you are going to enjoy yourselves so much and learn so much from this amazing woman. So please tune Um, I am so excited to introduce all of you to Jacqueline Raposo. Um, she is an amazing interviewer, writer, and radio host. Am I leaving anything out there, Jacqueline? <laughs> you, you, do it all. you do it all. But, um, she's also launching her, no, not launching, it's out, um, her new book, The Me Without. Um, this book, you guys, is so good. And I'm not just saying that because she's my guest. I cannot put it down. We're going to talk about it today. Um, but it is out in uh, Australia, the US. And by the time this is aired, it will be in the UK as well. Um, and this is a memoir all about her experience with um, not just with chronic illness. She happens to have chronic illness, but um, a lot of the impact our habits have on our bodies and our mental state. And I am fascinated by it and I'm fascinated by you. You're an amazing person. Thank you so much for being thank here today. You. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Oh, this is going to be fun. So um, I'm going to, at the end, um, tell everyone where you can find this book. So stay tuned. Mm -hmm. Um, okay, so let's start out by, I just want to know a bit about your background. Um, you're a radio co-host, you're a writer, you're an interviewer, you're a journalist. I already asked you if I'm leaving anything out, but um, if there's anything else you want to add in there, what kind of brought you into each of these roles? How did you get here doing all of these awesome things? Well, I actually started, um, I got my bachelor's in fine arts in stage acting and with a focus in playwriting. And that's sort of really how all of these things now came to be because I love theater. And for two primary <laughs> reasons, number one, that theater really is the embodiment of bringing words and ideas to life. And it's about collaboration between people. Like theater, I think, is the best form of collaborative arts. You have a script that uh, that a person has has brought forth from their mind and and their observations of the world. Then you have one actor working with other actors, working with the director, working with a sound and lighting designer and set designer, and 
and a props manager and a stage and a, you know, you have all these people working together to tell a story. And then that story goes in front of an audience and it's all about words and ideas. And I really love that. And then I got to a point where I just got too sick to perform. In my late 20s, I fell sick again. I was sick in college. I got another round of my illness in college and was still able to go through school and get my degree and perform during it while I was going home every weekend for treatments. It was really hard, but I sort of still kept going. And in my late 20s, I got sick again got better enough to perform for a while. And in my early 30s, I realized I just couldn't physically do the job well enough to A, compete as an actor and B, like just survive financially. I couldn't, being an actor, you have to act and do something. So I was acting Mm -hmm. and teaching or acting and bartending or acting and nannying or acting and (laughs) doing something else. And so I was able to figure out how to take that same curiosity for humans that doing plays sort of gave me. Why do we love what we love? Why do we do what we do? Why do we have conflicts? How do, how do we become who we are? Yeah. That I found in literature, that I found in plays, that I found in the conversations that actors get to have with each other and with directors and with, and with playwrights. I conscientiously figured out, okay, if I focus on interview then I can get some of that with real humans. So I went into food writing because I had a background with having this weird body. I had a background with eating <laughs> weirdly before before the internet. I was I've been off gluten since childhood because of my illness and yeah. um and dairy and all these other things. So I sort of fell into food writing, but instead of being a critic, instead of being um instead of there's so many things you can go to in food writing. I decided to focus on interview and then that went into lifestyle interview and that went into figuring out with podcasting using something that is sort of a creative, you know, theatrical sort of medium, you know, mm-hmm. sound is very interesting also. But if I could just focus on interview and talking to people and asking questions and figuring out why we are the way we are, it still satisfies that same curiosity yeah. and, um, and inspires me and people, people inspire me. And so that's sort of how, sort of like why I'm a, a writer and a, sort of a journalist and sort of a podcaster and sort of now an author, like it, it, it's all just about having conversations with people. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. And it does make sense. I mean, that's, that's what you're doing yeah. with acting is you're interviewing the character. To yeah, try and exactly. Who they are. Yeah, You're just exactly that into real people. <laughs> right. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so you're the co-host and producer of Love Bites Radio. Yeah. I'd love to know more. I mean, I think I kind of have an idea. It's a little obvious in the title, but um, what, is, <laughs> what are the, some, some of the topics you, you discuss? Tell me all about Well, I, yeah, I love it's Well, so I have a question for you first. Do you mm-hmm. feel like it's Love Bites or Love Bites? Love Bites. How am I saying that? Like, it's like in between. Like love two. bites. Yeah, because that's the thing. It's like I always thought it was going to be like, oh, like love bites. But then like, yeah. or, but then my co-host was like love oh. bites. And I was like, wait. And so that was always, this is sort of like, as Whoa. far as which conversation, what were you going to be having? It's like, yeah. oh, how are people going to hear it? So I guess like, I is, is it like, it. oh, love bites. Or is it like, oh, like love bites. <laughs> it depends you know, on like, the person. It's like half glass full or right. half empty. That's exactly. interesting. How did I say it? I don't know. That's the thing. I think I say it sort of neutrally too. I say like love bites. I think I said it kind of like reality bites. Like, right. I just keep thinking of that movie whenever I see the title. So I'm like, right. Love bites. Yeah. So it's hard to tell. But I guess like that sort of encompasses like that sort of double, 
entendre of it, like I think that sort of covers basically the canon of what we did. <laughs> I love. Uh, it. We talked about love, like we did. So we had eighty some episodes. It's on Heritage Radio Network, which is okay. um, a station out of Brooklyn, New York. That the shows are live, so you go into a studio and you record start to finish, and then it goes on it, live on the air, and then it goes to a podcasting platform. So it's a really interesting medium. Yeah, yeah it's very yeah. it's very fun, and mm-hmm. you sort of mess up, and you learn a lot as you go. So the first half of the show is my co-host, Ben Rosenblatt, and I basically giving the audience a <laughs> very intimate look into our dating lives. <laughs> we're both single, and we've both been single for a while. And we just, we're playing a lot of different, like, as far as topics, what's the difference with dating apps, you know, and let's go try experiments. Let's both message 50 people and see who gets the most responses or how that goes. So we try things like that. Um, and you know, or we would talk about, you know, we talk about dating cliches and whether we believe them to be true, or we would pick apart if one of us was going through something with a date we had been on, we would sort of ad nauseum talk about it and sort of figure out what we felt about it. Do your dates know that you have this? Like, do they... it depends. We'd have we both had our sort of rules about it, and that became a thing too. Some yeah. people wanted to be talked about on the oh. podcast, and they wouldn't mm-hmm. listen. And other people, I sort of had a thing where, like, I went on so many dates, and it only if it became a thing, I guess, would like mm-hmm. I tell like would I tell someone like, hey, by the way, I have this show. Yeah. Also, if they knew my full name, I'm very Googleable. Like, you Google my name, and it came up. Yeah. So that was also a thing, like how you tell people, like, I also have like, you Google me and like how I learned to date with a chronic illness comes up. Cause I wrote, mm-hmm. I wrote an essay about that on Cosmo. Right. So like keeping my chronic illness a secret, that was a big topic. Chronic yeah. illness was a topic on the show. We did um, a couple episodes about breakups because of chronic illness. We did a couple episodes about breakups in general. We did a whole series with couples. We did five weeks just on couples who we really admired and pitch their brains about their successes and their trials um, over sometimes decades. Uh, we interviewed a lot of authors, which was really great. Um, anything from Kristen Newman had a memoir, What I Was Doing While You Were Breeding, which was great about being <laughs> single in her 30s. Well, uh, she's having the children. Yeah, <laughs> was, yeah exactly. And she traveled the world. Um, Sarah Eckle, who had 20, uh, It's Not You, 27 Wrong Reasons Why You're Single, was a good one. Um, Lisa Phillips, who wrote, uh, it was more scholastic. She wrote uh, Unrequited Women and Romantic Obsession, which was more of a historical look at you know, what we think of this, you know, this romantic thing, or we get, you know, we fawn over each other. Um, and then we even had things that weren't even about romantic love, you know, sibling love, partnerships, uh, one about like a chef when his restaurant was closing and sort of what you do when something you lose goes away. Mm -hmm. Um, people, when their parents died, you know, mourning. So we really covered like a lot of just very intimate discussions about love and loss and, and then had this two years sort of journal <laughs> that, that was there. I love that. Yeah. So it's almost like I was just here at like a show last night. And uh, do you know who David Bazan is from Pedro the Lion? Yeah. Super obscure musician. But um, anyway, he was talking about love and he said, the, uh, he's like, if you're talking about love, you're going to be talking about grief because yes. it's the opposite of it. So it kind of sounds like yeah. what, what you're sure. Yeah. <laughs> Are you guys, or is it not happening anymore then? Is that, is it? Well, it's sort of. It's on hiatus. We took a okay. pause. Um, we took a pause as 
uh, a month before I got a contract for the book deal because my health started slipping again and it was very hard for me to get to the studio every week. Then I got the book deal. Then my health started slipping more. And now, not to give away the end of the book, but now <laughs> I am coupled <laughs> and my co-host was coupled. So now we can't quite do that dating show. So I have, um, <laughs> I have, I have Love Bites Part 2 in plan. And once this, uh, once both the book dies down and once I'm a little bit more back on my feet, love bites will be coming back. So we're just on hiatus right right now. Well, you've still got love. It's just in a different way. So exactly, exactly. So the, the next iteration is coming. Yeah. Yay. I can't wait. Um, well, I'll keep an eye on that. So, um, my guests for this series are all people who have, um, somehow overcome the limitations of their chronic illness. Um, not necessarily better from it, but just overcome it. Um, so tell me more about, um, kind of which illness you deal with, if you're comfortable with that, um, Mm -hmm. and how you are kind of able to move forward even while you're in pain, because I know that you still experience quite a bit of pain and setback from your illness. Yes. It's sort of hard to explain what I have. And in the book, I try to word it very carefully that I say I have the umbrella terms of this or these things stem from this because, um, so I first got sick. I'm 37 now. I first got sick when I was 12. And so I'm sort of in this community of people who have aged in bodies that were sort of damaged when they were younger and weren't properly mended. Mm -hmm. And so when your immune system is sort of, you know, sort of beaten up and then you fix things to a certain extent, but you maybe don't get at the core of something. And then we, we still don't know a lot about a lot of these illnesses that we have. And then I've seen just so many changes in the way we diagnose things or the way testing is, or, you know, certain amount of tests common and other amount of tests sort of negate them. So I just get very careful about saying this is exactly what I have, but I will say that. Okay. So my, my illness started with Lyme disease. I was okay. treated, um, late, late diagnosed Lyme disease and Babesia when I was first 12 and 13. And then those were re-diagnosed when I was 19 and 20. So when in college I was treated again for those. Um, and then since then, sort of since my mid twenties ish, then it, that became, um, my, uh, myalgic encephalitis and fibromyalgia. Mm. Um, those have worsened in the past couple of years. So now I'm primarily being treated for ME. Okay. Um, and, uh, POTS is a new diagnosis that mm. I've gotten diagnosed that I'm, uh, by the time this airs, I will have seen a cardiologist who specializes in that. Mm-hmm. And then I'm also working with a new re- neurologist. I wear these funky pink glasses all the time because I uh, have chronic migraine that I'm being treated for. Okay. Um, so it's sort of like this umbrella of autoimmune <laughs> That hits my head, my heart, my joints, uh, mm-hmm. my digestive tract. It's very uh, typical, though. I don't think you're too yeah, out of no, that's like that's when exactly. you've got one, it's very common to experience. Yeah, other, yeah, especially it's also, wearing down. Yeah, right. It's a wearing down of the system over years yeah. and years. I'm sorry yeah. that you've struggled with that. Um, Thank but you. I do admire um, you. With, why I sought you out is that you're, you're still doing, you're do, you're living your life and you've had to make adjustments obviously because of the acting, but yeah. you're still engaging in what, I don't know, what I see you here to do. Right. So that's cool. Well, as far as your question of, I just realized I didn't answer your question of like how you actually okay. push forward with it. I think it's yeah. because I don't identify myself as a person with chronic illness first and I never right. have. And I think 
what I tell people that it's hard to sort of explain is that I think the benefit and for people not um, people only hearing, not seeing, I'm doing like air quotes here and the run benefit <laughs> is that um, of getting ill so young is that it was before the internet, before digital communities, before conversation around chronic illness lifestyle. And so, and I, and I did grow up with a mother who sort of pushed for my healthcare. My parents did not accept my uh, pediatrician's diagnosis of mental illness, <laughs> which she flat out after wow. not being able to diagnose me with Lyme, told them to take me to the psychiatrist. I was, wow. could not move. I was in a wheelchair, told me, told them to take, that it was all that it was in my head that yeah. I was looking for attention and they told her to go to hell. I was a 12 year old kid. Good. Um, so I'm very, very lucky. And I'm very lucky that my mother found when antibiotics weren't working, found a doctor who worked in my immune system mm. and taught me very young about natural food and vitamins and um, how to take care of my immune system. Awesome. But I think from that, I very early on learned not to identify myself as a sick person first. Yeah. And so I don't even, I don't, I don't have that in my bio. I have sick and ha sick plus happy in my bios, but I don't have, I don't identify myself first as a as a person with chronic illness. I, and oh, that's a big part of it. I love that. That is, that is just absolutely the perspective that I have <laughs> sought out in other people because I did get sick when they, the internet was there and it was the most God awful thing because you go on and it's like, well, this is your new normal. Yeah. This is who you are now. Yeah. Uh, aren't we sad and sick forever? Right. <laughs> and, there, and I sympathize with it. I, yeah. I think it's worse in your case when you, when you have, when you've grown and you have so, when the stakes are higher, because mm -hmm. you've got, you have, you have more to lose. Mm hmm you know, like you've gotten, you've had health for so long and then all of a sudden you're thrust into a world you don't understand. Yeah. I, yeah. I sympathize with that, Callie. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's really, I really do. And so, um, and I understand why people reach for that community and why all of a sudden it yeah. can be empowering to yes. identify. But I think we're at this point where it's not necessarily, um, it really doesn't, it doesn't always necessarily move us or this whole like ableism disabled conversation forward I think it does still we're not still part of the whole right it's if so our scary. illness is the first thing that we're saying yeah. we identify as absolutely because even as people there are aside from chronic illness there are things that we experience that others don't and you do need Right. to find support in those areas. And I think maybe it's just, I feel like maybe it just needs to shift in the type of support. And maybe you're, it just depends on the person and what you need, but yeah, right. who you are is the umbrella is not, yeah, is not whatever struggle you're going through. So yeah. Um, yeah, that's cool. You articulated that well. Um, it's hard, it's hard to find people who kind of, because I feel like I'm either offending because I don't want to offend anyone or make any, of you know, course. you know, like, of course your pain is real. Of course this is hard. I'm not saying that it isn't, but, um, some point you've got to identify with it, something more. Yeah. Right. And it take it does take time. Yes. Like that's why it's like, I've had a lot of time and I point out to people, I've had a lot of time with this. It does mm -hmm. take time to figure out how you feel about where you are with yeah. your illness, but you have, you have to grieve. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. So let's shift a little bit. I want to talk about this book. Um, what motivated you to write about habit change? Like, 
and you kind of explain about it in the beginning of the book, for, but for people who haven't read it yet, like what was that first sort of push? And why is well, that? Well, I think, um, I think that it, the motivation for writing it was sort of just, <laughs> I mean, I'm a, I'm a writer and so I just sort of got, somebody's like the project that I was doing, people in my life were seeing that it was making a difference. And just because of connections in my writing world, somebody was like, this is a project you should write as a book. People have been sort of telling me to write a book for a couple of years. And that's just how this book came about is that Mm -hmm. this was the thing in my life that people were telling me I should write into a book. I'd never written something first person before. It's not generally, like I said, I'm an interviewer. I'm not, it's not my comfort zone at all. (laughs) That's why I interview so many people in the book. That's why like, it's not, that's why I say it's a memoir cross case study. I interview designers, neurologists, artists, uh, doctors, both for my personal journey in it to figure out what's happening in my body and mind as I explore taking habits out of my life, but also because it's my comfort zone is to interview other people and to pull their expertise in and to not speak as an expert myself Mm -hmm. um, or to just share my, my own story. But I would not have written about the project had it not so changed my life. Mm -hmm. Um, I was not, I'm getting choked up even thinking Mm -hmm. about it. And it does send physical sensations in my body Mm -hmm. to talk about it, that I was not happy Mm -hmm. when I started this book. And I wasn't, I wasn't horribly unhappy. Like there've been times in my life that I've been less happy than when I started this journey. I called it first my year of abstinence because I thought Mm -hmm. it was sort of cheeky. (laughs) Then, um, changed it eventually to calling it my year without. But when I started the project where I just went off of social media for 40 days, I was just so, I knew something had to change and I couldn't figure out what I was getting sicker. I was dating all the time, but hadn't met the guy and all of my friends were like just couple. I mean, I had, I definitely had single friends and I had a lot of single female friends or acquaintances who were also mm-hmm. struggling with this, but I couldn't figure out why I wasn't having better, making better connections with the guys I was dating. And financially, I, my finances were getting worse and worse. And I was, I was getting scared. I was getting really scared about that. Like why, if I was working and people were valuing my work, why I couldn't figure out how to make more money from it. And especially when you're sick and you can't work that much, like there's very few things I can do physically for work. And so by the end of the, so I started this project and by the end of the project, I actually like, and I just did a project. It wasn't going to be a book. And then, you know, without giving, I know we're going to talk a little bit more about specifics Mm -hmm. in it, but like it actually worked. Like it was the worst year of my life. And then it was the best year of my life. (laughs) And then it worked. And by the end of it, I was a different person and I'm still a different person from it. It's incredible. And it still affects me. It's like I were I invested in myself. Mm-hmm. I worked my ass off. I mm-hmm. hit really I hit the lowest point I've ever been. Mm. But I changed and and I did it for myself and I think other people like and the whole point of writing the book is so that other people can do it for themselves. It's not like it's not like a, here now go do my book. Yeah. It's like Yeah figure out your, whatever your thing is. It's not, I'm not a coach. It's it's not a self-help book in the way that now here's the project for you to go do for yourself. Mm -hmm. But it really did help me just see the world in a new way. And and I'm so grateful. Like I'm just, (laughs) I'm just so grateful. I'm so glad you wrote it. And I think I, 
I memoirs, like sometimes you can open them and it's just like, dear God, like, can they stop talking about themselves? It's just so bad. I know. That's why I was so intimidated to write one because they're just like, oh my God, yeah. navel gazing. Like, oh. <laughs> no, but I did not get that from you at all. Thank you. I, it's, um, it's just sort of like talking to a friend and hearing about like, this, is, this really changed my life. Like you can hear, you can hear that. Thank it, you. It did. And, um, and I'm compelled, like it's, I know you're not telling people you go do this, but just hearing your story and just hearing a lot of the research too, that you brought in from your interviews, it's so compelling and so motivational, the social media one, especially. Yeah. As I was writing notes on the social media part, I, I went over and I checked Instagram like three times. Like, what am I doing? Right. I'm doing it right now. I know. I know. <laughs> Very eye-opening. It's, yeah, that oh, one still, that's, yeah. Well, um, we can go ahead and talk about that because that's the next question I had planned for okay. you. Okay, perfect. Um, so I found you via Instagram, via social media. Right. So it really can't be that bad. Right, right. But um, you tell me how bad it is in your experience. Tell me about that experience. How well, I could obviously talk about this for a very long time. Um, and I, I could, <laughs> I've obviously read about it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So it's social media is great if mm-hmm. it is a tool that we are using and we are controlling it and it's mm-hmm. making us happy. If mm-hmm. we like using social media, if we are using it in a way that on our time and it's a choice, then great. And if we are feeling genuinely connected with other people on it, then wonderful. The problem is there are so many things that we are not even realizing that social media is doing to us because we are doing it habitually and we are letting it take over our brain and bodies without our even being aware of it. And that is intentional. Mm -hmm. Social media is designed by people, some of them with very good intentions, many of them with intentions that are not in our best interest. They are designed by designers with algorithms to keep us online. They are literally making money with our time. They make money with our scrolling. They make money with our clicking. And they are designed to keep us scrolling and clicking. And what that does to us neurologically is that we have this neurotransmitter dopamine, which is the same thing that we get a rush of pleasure. It's the, the, the pleasure rush that we get. And we get it from other things that can be good for us, like exercise, like spending time with friends, anything that makes us laugh, any novel thing, basically, any newer novel thing that we love sends this rush of dopamine to our brain, but also things like sugar and things like alcohol and things like drugs and things like getting going on to, to Instagram and seeing how many hearts you have will give you like this tiny little rush of dopamine. But the problem is that there's this dopamine thing, we need more and more of it as we use, as we go back to the same thing. So we're not going to get the same amount of rush from the same thing. And as we age, the natural amount of dopamine we have in the brain recedes. I think it's like 10% for every decade. So of course, of course. And the thing is we're not even realizing it as it happens. (laughs) So that's one thing about social media. And then there's the actual like holding technology. Like there's the fact that like there's the blue light issue that people talk about And then there's the fact that like, as far as social connectiveness, which is the most important thing to me, is that we don't get from social media, it's very Mm two-dimensional. We are not getting the things that our eyes need that transmit information to our brain. Um, We're not getting gestures. We're not getting, uh, we're not getting the tiny little 
things that our eyes take in that send information to our brain as far as, oh, that's what this person is feeling. That's what this person means. The same thing with vocal inflection. Mm -hmm. Our brain is like taking all of this information to help us understand what what another person is communicating to us. It's helping us process a lot of this stuff that helps us react then with compassion or kindness or humor or whatever, whatever, you know, we're doing in a conversation. We don't get that with this technology. And so we have a lot of miscommunication and this goes the same thing for, you know, text messages too. Right. But with social media, that's why like a lot of studies show that we are far more inclined to bully people online and say, or say, or even not even bully, but say things to people online and react far more quickly and harshly than we ever would when somebody is standing in front of us. Mm-hmm. And again, because we acclimate, our brain is very good at acclimation. We do it faster and easier the more and more we use something. So when we are on social media all the time, it becomes second nature to dehumanize others in a way that we wouldn't if we were actually at, you know, going things that our parents did, going bowling, having potluck dinners, um, you know, going, having like social drinks, having happy hour at the office, like all of these things that generations before us did that we don't do. Right. Um, and those statistically, we're not doing as much. We are not as social of a society now as we used to be. I'm so that's a lot of stuff about, yeah. and that's no, it's yeah. fascinating. My mind's like thinking of all, all of these different things based off of it. But one of them that was sticking out to me was, um, like the, the future generation, the kids that are teenagers now. And yeah. so I, I'm, I work very part-time as a school psychologist. So a lot of my training is, you know, in social socialization and um and and I think these very basic social skills like you were mentioning just how do I how is my tone when I'm sad what is my tone when I'm happy what is tone when I'm frustrated with this person and what isn't it and I think I'm just concerned (laughs) future generations that they're just going to miss out on a level of relationship that and we probably have too, because of the amount of technology right. we have removed from previous generations. But yeah. Yeah. It's, I didn't use a lot of her information in the book um, mm-hmm. because it wasn't as applicable to people our age and people older, but Sherry Turkle is mm-hmm. um, a researcher and psychiatrist. She's an MIT professor who for, since I think like the eighties, she started doing research on technology and specifically its effect on children. Okay. And so, and her books are incredible. Her lectures are incredible and they are fascinating and scary um, because she has reports of children not being able to recognize pain in other children and not, or not being able to respond with empathy that they are, that they don't care that they hurt other children's feelings because they can't recognize that they've hurt other children's feelings. And it's because they're on their devices all day. They would rather text than talk. They would rather be on social media than actually be with each other in real life. And I think a lot of people are sort of recognizing that and, you know, pushing back from that and trying to make sure that we're, you know, that, that that we're having some response to that for children now, I think, you know, but um, but she's a great resource. There's, there's resources, uh, a lot of them on my website for a lot of these, I call them my super smart human crew, <laughs> <laughs> especially with social media and the psychology aspect of all the things that I studied. 
she, um, I actually wrote down one of the quotes from your book from Sherry Turkle. Is that how you say her last name? I yes. loved it. So good. Um, and she's talking about social media. We think we are never alone and therefore are not mm. lonely. Right. Yeah. So yeah. let's talk more about your experience with that because um, I don't think I explained well. You went 40 days, right? Your biblical, mm-hmm. biblical 40 days. A <laughs> biblical 40 days. Super <laughs> 21st century Jesus. So I was very egotistical about that. I <laughs> loved that. Um, Catholic family would not be happy when they did that. <laughs> um, so 40 days with zero social media. So no Instagram, no Facebook, no text, like texting you could still do. Yes. Texting I did, but no Twitter and no dating apps too, which I considered a form of, you know, social media. So yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. So, um, a little bit about your, your own personal experience with that. What did you find? How hard was it? It was shockingly, embarrassingly hard (laughs) at the beginning. Um, I, like you just said, like you, did Instagram three times while in a short period. Like I didn't realize how often I would grab the phone without meaning to that. I would, you know, I work from home. Mm -hmm. I'd be at my desk. I would get up to make a cup of tea and grab the phone. I'd get up to go to the bathroom and grab the phone. I would stop to think about a sentence that I was, you know, writing mid sentence. I would stop to think about it and grab the phone to look at, you know, whatever one And how many times a day I stopped to do that was just petrifying. And then Mm -hmm. there was the going out in social situations alone. At that time, I was a lot more social than I am now. Um, And the idea of back then I couldn't walk into a space and not know somebody and then just stand there or meet people or be comfortable with my own thoughts. Mm -hmm. I had to have a phone in my hand. And so I would panic. I'd be so uncomfortable with just being in a space without being able to dive into my phone, which is, you know, right here Mm -hmm. because all of my stuff is here just in (laughs) case I need it during this interview. (laughs) But I don't, but I would just be, if I couldn't just be holding this and looking distracted, right. You know, like important, then I didn't know what to do. And so that it took 10 days to break from that 10 days to be, and then also there was, and this is where being sick comes in. I spent a lot of time alone. And mm-hmm. so I, it heightened the fact, it heightened the, the reality that, wow, I do spend a lot of time alone without mm-hmm. other people and people are doing things and I'm here alone. And mm-hmm. wow, I am unhappy being alone. It really um, had me admit that like, oh, I don't like being alone mm-hmm. and sick. I always had been, I just hadn't let myself admit that. So I think that was sort of the first step, but I did tell a friend by, but by day 10, I sort of had made peace with that and was able to just sort of sit and look and notice the beautiful things again. Mm-hmm. And, and that, so that took 10 days. And then by day 20 of the 40, I had emailed a friend that I was, that the socialization I was getting from people mm-hmm. felt a lot more important even if that was just when I was walking my dog, like saying hi to neighbors, that that actually felt real. Cause before I'd be walking my dog with my phone in my hand, looking at social media. Okay. Now I was walking my dog, like meeting people and oh. talking to neighbors and actually having connections. And I was, yeah. time I was alone myself. I was connecting with myself. Mm-hmm. And so it was like 20 days in where I was like, and I said to him flat out, like it's been the last two years I've been getting sicker and I haven't been able to control that. 
but I'm now realizing how much around that I can change because I'm happier now than I was 20 days ago. Wow. And that literally was just from going off of social media and having to sit with my thoughts or sit with the view of whatever was in front of me. When I didn't have this screen, this frame in front of me, all of a sudden I could see the big frame in front of me Mm. and it hurt and it continued to have up and downs with it, but it, it really, it was a significant change. I don't think that the project would have, the big project would have come if I'd started with a different habit. I think it had to be technology and social media that I started with. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you were kind of confronted with yourself, confronted entirely. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Having to deal with those thoughts without the distraction. Yeah. That, yeah. It, but it all, there were, I have to look up my note on this too. Um, you like, I know a good writer when I'm writing and there's just all of a sudden this moment where it's like goosebumps. It's just like, mm-hmm. I want, I, I feel that moment where you were writing about um, the train and how you were watching a video of the train. And oh, yeah. Oh, I loved, I just loved that visual and just the, how present you were in that moment and just realizing the things that were around you and seeing the color of the sky and just things that we, <laughs> we don't look at yeah. anymore. We're so zoned yeah. into social media. So that was um, beautiful and just convicting for me to, to read about that. So, Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And that's, and that's what I mean as far as that kind of stuff is still, with me today mm-hmm. that, like I notice yeah. Yeah. the light mm. all the time like mm. it's the first thing I notice in the morning is like what the light is like Interesting. Yeah. it's not the first thing I do in the morning is not pick up my phone the first thing I notice is like what's the light today what does the air feel like today and I don't do it on purpose it's just what it's just what a normal what thing it does is yeah. yeah what we and did it, before a, yeah yeah, when I read that part, I I laughed. I literally laughed out loud because I was just like, "That's exactly." It's like in a little pouch next to the side of the yeah. bed. What happened yeah. on Instagram while I was sleeping for like five hours? Nothing. Right. Apparently right. It means that much to me. So yeah. Well, I think I need to do a little break myself. Um, loved reading about that. Um, but. So let's talk a little bit about the idea of minimalism because that's kind of what's come up um, in your book, kind of in each of the chapters to what you've done. Um, How could someone put that into place? Where should they start? Is it just this? Who's the woman on Netflix that everyone's talking about right now? Uh, Marie Kondo. (laughs) Yeah. It's not just Marie Kondoing everything, right? So, like, what's the what's your idea behind all of that? Idea of it. Well, so I didn't. So I didn't study minimalism specifically, but it sort of wove it, weaved, wove, weaved, weaved its way. Wove. Wove its way. Weave Wove its, its way. way. I think you could go either way with that one. I think you could too. And I also am a yeah. big fan of making up words when you choose to. So mm. I'm going to say it wove, it, it weavened its way. It I'm going to choose weaving. Do that one. It weaved. Best. I choose weaving. Yeah. It weaved its way um, <laughs> into both when I did 90 days of no shopping and then yeah. did 60 days of zero waste. Okay. And, um, because by not shopping, I basically was not allowed to buy anything that was not a need. Um, so that, that included like I, when I bought groceries, I could only, I could buy groceries that I needed. I could not buy like 
fun groceries. Mm. Um, I could oh, buy really? no clothes. Right. So like I I think like by the end of it when I tell it, I was like, okay, I did buy a pint of, you know, dairy free ice cream once, but I was interviewing the CEO and it was on sale. So like, you know, I so I was interviewing for an article. Yeah. So like that's why I got to buy it. But like and then there was one other thing I had bought. But like other than that, it was necessary groceries. It was like I couldn't buy chapstick until I'd used every single chapstick I own. Love that. And from that from that, what ended up coming was realizing how much I don't use that I already own. Mm. And that's sort of where it's similar to, and then, and then realizing what I do use and what I love, because I realized like, oh, I only love these things to the point that I use them. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of where it crosses into minimalism and the Marie Kondo idea, which is yeah. that you, that items have value and it's not only the, the like, oh, this, you know, it's not only the cheap view of like, oh, this bring, has to bring me joy. It's like we should honor and use and respect the items that we have. Mm-hmm. Somebody made them. They mm-hmm. came from materials that this earth made. We shouldn't just so quickly discard. You talk about how you are sicker now than you were before. How are you happier? Um, and is that, I think there are probably people listening right now um, who have not experienced a reduction in their symptoms. I know that's the overall goal for most people is to get that reduction, but sometimes it doesn't happen. And I know for you, um, it hasn't, and you've kind of been dealing with more pain. So kind of what advice would you give to someone tuning in? Um, I think the first is to believe in and. I'm a very big believer in and. Okay. That sick and happy mm. are okay. I think we talk a lot about um, invisible illness in mm. my sector of chronic illness community. Yeah. And invisible disability. Mm-hmm. And I get a lot of questions about, um, but you look so healthy. And mm. so how can you be so sick? Or how do you deal with the fact that you look so healthy? And so um, I say, well, because there's the and that like, yeah, it doesn't matter that I look this healthy. And also I sort of don't, I, I used to be bothered by that, but I don't cause you know, I, I sort of try to not look sick all the, I'm, there's no definition of what a sick person looks like. And again, yeah. this is part of advocacy that I'm trying to break yeah. a stigma of this is what a sick person looks like. This is what a disabled person looks like. The reality is I am very sick. The reality mm-hmm. is that I am in pain all the time. The reality mm-hmm. is that while we are recording this, I have a cold. I'm in a lot of pain. I have Mm. to wear, I only took my sunglasses off to put my pink glasses on so that you could see me a little bit, but I'm in like (laughs) fighting migraine mode and I Mm. spent all day in bed yesterday. Um, and I will spend the rest of today in bed, but but it's okay, you know, because I, because I believe in and, Mm -hmm. and so the and is that I work very hard on relationships. I work very hard to find value in who I am outside of outside of my health. And what the project did for me is it helped me reassess my values, what I love, what makes me happy Mm. and my priorities outside of being sick too. And so like you used the word mourning before, as far as when, you know, Mm -hmm. when people who were healthy get an illness, like yeah, I had to let go of like what, you know, what I might want to be or do, 
But once you get to that point where you figure out this is what I value, this is what I love, this is what makes me happy, and you sort of let figure out how to let go of the expectations that you had, mm-hmm. then you can find genuine joy in like, okay, so I know that like I know for me certain types of books make me happy. Mm-hmm. So like I leaned into those type of books and I don't try to read other type of books anymore because I should read those type of books. <laughs> yeah. Or you know, I love like I love bird watching. I love being a nerd for nature. Mm-hmm. I love and so I lean into that kind of stuff. I don't care how dorky I seem. You know, those things fill me up with joy. My relationships are the most important thing to me and so I will stop what I'm doing if somebody I haven't seen in forever facetimes me. And my relationships are so important that I work at them. Yeah. I don't expect anything from anybody. Um, I don't expect to get special treatment because I have an illness as far as my relationships go. Um, And so I think being happier is about recognizing you can be sick and happy. I'm in pain and happy. They can coincide. Believing that you deserve to be happy. Mm. That just because you're sick... You, you're allowed to be, you're allowed to be happy, mm-hmm. even if you're sick and that you have a choice. You, you have a choice to either be sick and miserable no. or sick and something better than that. There's a lot you can do even from bed. There's a lot you can do and you can do it with every person that you meet that comes into your room or every phone call or every Instagram message. There's a, there's resources everywhere that are free or even if you don't ever watch a TED talk or read a book, we have a choice. We might not have a choice in our illness, right? but we have a choice in how we treat people. We have a choice in how we treat ourselves. We have a choice in what we bring to the conversation, what we bring to the table. And so, especially since we don't have a choice in our illness, why wouldn't we want to take control of what we can? And so- yeah. So for me, that's where like, believe in and mm-hmm. allow yourself to be happy and do the work to make the choice to be happier. Oh, girl, I have like all of the hands raised right now. <laughs> Everything you. you just said. Because it's so huge. I feel like so many people are just waiting. Like they're waiting for their symptoms to go away. I did. Like I just kept waiting, oh, yeah. and waiting and waiting. And it's just like, if you do that, you're, you're losing so much of your life. And yeah, I love that. ands, sick ands. what else are you? What else yeah. is there that you do have control over? Huge. I yeah. love that. Love that. And, and I think it comes with communicating people too. Like I yeah. tell people I am in pain and I'm going out with you or mm-hmm. I'm in pain and I'm staying home. Like there's a line, of course, mm-hmm. you got to protect yourself. Sure. You can't, yeah, you don't feel like, good. You're not going out. You can't yeah. do anything. Yeah. You can't, yeah. there's a line of what you can physically do or not. Right. Right. But just communicate, just you take, own it, mm-hmm. just own it. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't cower. This is you. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to start singing the best showman right now. Um, this is me. I'd be so happy if you did. <laughs> be very happy if you did. And it's not going to happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, if my voice was like that much better, maybe. <laughs> okay. Um, so I did want to talk to you about creativity for a bit here too. Mm-hmm. Um, you obviously have a lot of creative outlets uh, that you engage in. Um, so do you ever feel like those kind of help you cope with your illness? And you kind of touched on this a little bit, but. Yeah, I think um, not writing itself, actually. Mm-hmm. I'm not a huge fan of actually writing. <laughs> writing 
Yeah, you're writing, so good at it. That's, so, that's surprising. Thank you. Uh-huh. Well, it's because I think it's it's hard. Writing is hard, and, and physically it's hard. Um, working on a computer is very hard. Working on a computer hurts. I can no longer even sit at a desk. I'm lucky that last year when I wrote the book, I could sit at a desk, and I I did sit at a desk. But I can, I I have had to back off on my productivity as a journalist right now because um, as my health has worsened, and so that's you know a part of the world yeah. of yeah. of illness and, and disability. Um, mm-hmm. But as far as uh, as far as how it helps me cope with my illness, um, one of the resources I loved in the book was Tim Kasser. Um, he's a he's another researcher and scientist and psychologist, and he his book The High Price of Materialism is a lot about our consumerist habits. He takes decades of um, imperial data and sort of applies them to um, consumerism, but he basically talks about our psychological needs and how he breaks all of this down and at the end sort of pulls it into that we have these psychological needs, these four psychological needs. And the problem with our consumer society is that instead of really working to fulfill these psychological needs, we end up seeking them out in consumeristic ways because that's how our society is built now. So it's a fascinating read for that. But basically what writing and creative outlets does for me is it fulfills these psychological needs. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is safety, security, and sustenance. That once we have what we need, once we have, you know, a roof of our over our head and food and healthcare and stability in those things, then we feel safe. And so, writing as a job when it's going well enough mm-hmm. that I am making stable income, yeah. it's it's something I can do as a person who is technically now somewhat disabled. Um, I cannot go to an office and work and I have not been for many years now able to physically work. Um, and so writing is something I can do from home and make money from it. Uh, the second is competence, competency, efficacy, and self-esteem. And it's the idea that we are, um, skilled enough to do a task set in front of us. And so, um, you know, we have confidence that we are learning something that we can do or that we are contributing something that we can do. And writing gives me that self-esteem. It gives me that feeling of confidence. Yeah. Um, and then the third is community. And obviously writing gives me something to contribute to a community and have a dialogue with a community. And it gives me that like a reason to interview people and to talk <laughs> about that. Um, and then the final is uh, authenticity and autonomy. And it's that we are choosing our path in the world, that we have control over our choices, we are living as who we want to be. And as a writer, that is very much like, you know, getting to choose how I, not choose how I see the world, but again, crafting how, how I see the world and getting to have some, some choice in what I do. And so that's how, again, like it's the idea, I'm not just a sick person. It gives me this sort of steady table or steady chair legs of, I have, um, I have an identity and I have grounding and I have some sort of path or value or something that gives me uh, purpose and connection to people. Um, so that I'm not just dealing with the things that we're dealing with. Like I'm, I'm not just dealing with keeping my health, you know, my healthcare assistance or scheduling doctors or rescheduling doctors or fighting for a prescription or waiting for lab results to come back. Not sure if I want them to be positive or negative, you know, like, um, so just, it gives me those things outside of just figuring out what's happening inside of here. Yeah. Oh, that's so huge. And I think that 
I hear too, like the, that control thing you were talking about before, it's the stuff you can control. And that's, yeah. 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 Huge. Um, what would you say? Cause there's a lot of people, um, you know, that are told, oh, it's all in your head. Um, but I think that there's a difference and I'd love to hear your opinion on it and the uh, difference between it's all in your head and sort of the impact that our habits, our thoughts, all of the things that you went through in this book, um, how the, the impact that those have on our health and well-being. So the things that are in our head, how they right. Are. Yeah. Well, I get, um, I know I use the phrase in our, all in our head in the book um, about what I'd heard and what we often hear with chronic illness before we get diagnoses. Like I'd said, like that's what I was told as a kid. And I've heard that as an adult by people who are not good enough doctors. <laughs> uh, but even, but I get so wary of the phrase all in our head because even people with mental illness, they have physical illnesses that just happen to be neurological illnesses. So the thing, our brain, our head, our brain, when we say all in our head, it's still part of our body. And it's still this thing that some things in it we can are malleable and some are not. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a difference between having anxiety for something that's real and that's there's a real world problem that we all deal with and having anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. There's there's a difference between being manic depressive and then being have it going through a rough patch for a couple of months and not taking action. And I think those are very important distinctions. And I work very hard to sort of, you know, later in the book, when I talk about battling night anxiety, mm-hmm. about wording it as such that it's clear that I'm not someone with an anxiety disorder, because mm-hmm. I think those people need it, need proper attention and focus. Yeah. Um, but one thing I found comforting was that um, studies have been done about neuroplasticity, that mm-hmm. our brain has this wonderful ability to adapt and change and mold. And, um, you know, this Canadian, uh, psychiatrist Donald O'Heb, you know, coined the phrase neurons that fire together, wire together. And so, yeah, yeah, I love it. And then, um, this other, uh, this other psychiatrist later, I'm trying blanking on his name right now. Cause I read so many, I think it was Cass who said that like our brain is like a muscle. And if you don't use the right part of the muscle, it's going to get tired mm-hmm. and it's going to get out of shape. And so if we're not, um, if we're not using our happy muscles in a way, <laughs> like just metaphorically, yeah. you know, like they're yeah. going to get out of shape. Yeah. And you know, another resource I said I use in the book, um, you know, it said like happy people surround themselves with happy things. It's really not that, you know, novel of an idea that like, you've got to keep feeding your brain, you know, and all these things that our brain, it's got, our brain's got a big job. Our brain yeah. is, you know, it's, it's, it's controlling everything in our body. It's taking in all everything we're seeing, we're, we're hearing, we're smelling. Yeah. yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah. it's regulating our blood pressure and our blood sugar and our hormones. And it's, it's got this fight or flight thing. It's regulate. It's doing all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so there's obviously we can't, if we could use our brain to control everything, then yeah, we'd be healing ourselves magically and sure. we'd be, you know, yeah. astral projecting and, you know, doing all this cool <laughs> stuff and we can't. So but awesome. there is a part of our, you know, some people, some say it's 40% of our happiness can be controlled. That 50% is, um, is based mm-hmm. on our DNA and 10% is based on life circumstances and 40% is up to our, um, you know, our chain, our ability to change. And that 40%, 
was, you know, that's what I talk about in the book towards the end that I want to see how much I can sort of play with that 40%. So there are things that we, if we just keep on doing them in the same way that we accidentally form habits, if we just keep on doing things and our brain keeps firing and wiring, just fire and wire the, fire the, and wire. the happy neurons, fire and wire the happy neurons, yeah. you yeah. know, like it's, it can just, so what if it's in your head, you know, like, yeah, yeah your brain's yeah. in your head, just it is. Have fun. Have fun messing with it, right? 40%, I feel like, is a significant... That's a significant number. That's nothing... Yeah, exactly. That's the difference between happy or not happy, really. Right. 40% happier. That's huge. Totally. Um, At my lowest, saying 10% happier, I would have taken. Seriously. That's still something. for your book because you mentioned that your conversations were challenging at times so I'm just curious to know more about how how so yeah well because unlike um unlike when I interview people for stories like when I go about interviewing people for articles I'm interviewing them for writing about them and it's just Mm -hmm. like okay I'm going to write this article so I'm going to interview this person and it's going to be their story for the book I was going through this project and I would get to this point where I was like why is this happening to me (laughs) let me seek out somebody who might be able to give me an answer. (laughs) And so it would depend on either at that point in the process, I would read their, their article or watch their TED talk or listen or read their, their study or their book, um, and then seek them out either then or afterwards. But they would be challenging because I want concrete answers. I'd want to be like, this is happening in my body. Tell me exactly what's going on because you are a neuroscientist. (laughs) And they'd be like, science isn't that accurate. Like we do (laughs) studies on rats, on the brains of rats and we do them, you know, or, or with all of the studies we've done, studies pick, like with all the articles that we read online from these science magazines, they're picking very specific populations of people or, or they're, they're not general enough or they're too, they're too general or, they're not made to, they're basically like, we can't tell you weird person who's had chronic illness forever, who like didn't eat much sugar to begin with exactly what's happening with your adaptation of fructose versus glucose, like, glucose that you're asking us about. And I was like, no, but I want to know, you know, like, tell me, yeah, you have the answers. Me. You have the like, exactly. You're a scientist. Yeah. Like science isn't that specific. Like yeah. you have, and, and that was sort of across the board. I'd be like, okay, you, you know, you have this podcast about loneliness and you do all this research about chronic loneliness. You know, all you've read all these studies. You're very smart. Tell me, do I have chronic loneliness? Am I acting mm-hmm. this way out of chronic loneliness? Mm-hmm. And basically everybody I went to would be like, we don't have like nothing that you can read, no self-help books, no article, no study is going to give you the answer about yourself. Like they all have, everybody had a disclaimer. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody had a disclaimer, <laughs> and, which eventually ended up being comforting. That was like, you have to do the work for yourself. Mm. You have to figure it out for yourself. And so, and that, and so whether, whatever habit it is, mm. you know, that's why I say in the book, there's no, there's no way to tell if you are addicted to social media or sugar or online shopping or whatever habit you want to explore by filling out a survey online. Mm-hmm. You've got to just take the time to figure it out for yourself. You've got to ask yourself some hard questions and you've got to go through the experience. Like, and so that's why the, the interviews were fascinating and I'm glad I did them. And mm-hmm. again, studies and imper- like a, a massive amount of data shows that you have a far greater chance of succeeding at changing something you want to change if you learn. Um, 
being confronted with the consequences and implications of your values and changing to live a life of value helps people make the change. And I try to pull that in because the more we know, the more better prepared we are and the more we have like this whole pool of the world behind us so that when a neuroscientist tells you, you probably weren't addicted to sugar, you probably were just really sad that a guy broke up with you and the election was rough and you're not drinking alcohol right now (laughs) and people are really mean in the world, you're probably just really sad. Mm. Then you can like be like, okay, I've got tools I can keep on going. Mm Yeah. Yeah. Whereas it would be easier to just have the scientists say it was yeah, the science. Exactly. I really wanted her to say that it was the sugar and yeah. the science writer was like, tell me it's the sugar. He's like, I don't think from what you're telling me it is, but the data, and I was like, well, tell me it's the fructose. It's not the glucose. <laughs> like, I don't, I've written three books and I still can't tell you. And I'm like, Durr. all right, I'll just but, keep on being miserable. But the sugar made you ask the questions. Exactly. Learn, so um, okay, so I'm going to ask you one more question and then I have some silly rapid fire questions for you. But um, okay. what advice do you have for the chronic illness community? So you've, you've worked a lot on habit change. So um, what kind of habit changes do you think for them in particular might make a difference? And why should they even care to do that? Well, I can't necessarily say a habit, like this specific habit change will make a difference. Okay. But... Uh, because everybody's different, obviously. Right, right. And like I said, I'm not a coach. Um, I do think technology and time offline, whatever the technology is, whether it's television, texting, um, using a computer, social media, I think the more we are talking to humans and not on machines yeah. is a huge part of living in the real world. And I think that it just I think that's just something with our brain that obviously I talk about it in the book, but I think for me personally, getting out of the habit of looking at the screen, mm-hmm. like I said before, is so that I could see this this around me. Um, getting out of that habit was life changing. I cannot express how different my life is. I don't feel powerless. Before I was feeling powerless to the fact that I was single, sick, and broke. Mm. I am now still. I'm sicker. I'm broke slash maybe even broker. Mm. I'm not single anymore. Um, but that, and I, I would probably still be single if I were if I hadn't done this project. Um, but when you, when you act out of habit, you're acting out of passivity. When you are acting out of choice, you are in the present and you are, and that is just like, we all talk about this intangible presence that we want. Like if you're just choosing what you want to eat rather than eating out of habit, if you are choosing what you watch on TV rather than mindlessly scrolling or just letting Netflix let the neck, like just keep on playing for you. You're just paying attention. Mm -hmm. Um, You're just paying attention to what's happening in the world and your brain is getting all these beautiful sounds and images rather than just letting time pass by. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and I think especially with chronic illness, when we feel powerless to the fact that our bodies are not what we want them to be and that we can't change them and that we feel helpless when people won't help us fix them. And for those of us also stuck in a financial rut or stuck in a system where we can't get to the right doctors, we don't have access to the right treatment, we don't have as much choice and we don't have as much power as we want to have. And so, again, it goes back into 
once you stop acting out of habit, you realize how many choices you have, mm. how many choices you have as soon as you open your eyes in the morning. Yeah. So empowering. Yeah. Cause you do, you get the control is taken away. And when you, yeah. I just, I got the visual too of just watching your life go by on like the screen yeah. in front of you. And that's literally what's happening <laughs> with social media yeah. phones and yeah. Yeah. Engage in it. I love that. Take the power back. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, so we're just going to get a little, uh, few, few weird it. questions out for you <laughs> at the end. It's supposed to be rapid fire, but I have a tendency I will, to acting, but we'll do our okay. best. I will okay. try to go rapid fire. Okay. Driven too. okay. Yeah. All right. All right. So your Instagram bio says chronically ill and happy. We talked about this. Um, what are the top five things making you happy right now? Um, spotting random acts of kindness done mm-hmm. by others, growing plants, Mm-hmm. Um, I grow a lot of plants in my apartment. So I have a paper white lily growing, a tiny Italian pine tree, spider plants. Um, I grow a lot of plants in my apartment. So I love that. Love my it. dog, Mitra, always. Aww. My dog is one of my favorite things. Uh, my loved ones are being amazing as I go through this book launch process. So my parents, my siblings, my boyfriend, uh, my roommate, friends are messaging me from everywhere that they're buying the book, reading the book with their reflections of the book. I am overwhelmed by, uh, the personal love and, um, especially around my illness, people not realizing how sick I've been, people not understanding it, but now they're understanding me better and mm-hmm. reaching out with, with just love and support, um, has been just overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly wonderful. And, uh, bed is always one of my favorite things, but <laughs> I got a moon, a moon pod, which is this amazing beanbag. My boyfriend gave it to me for Christmas. And it is, for anybody who has somebody who can buy them an expensive beanbag, it is an aerodynamic beanbag. And it is uh, that and a gravity blanket is my safe space right now. That sounds amazing. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Oh, I love you. Yeah, it's a kick. You're happy. <laughs> yeah. happy. I have a weighted blanket, but I haven't. I have, do not have a moon pod. I want to try it. I've been wanting a beanbag. The house that I rented for writing the book had a beanbag chair in it, and I've been wanting one since then. And this is like the best possible beanbag bed that you. Yeah, okay. it's amazing. I'm gonna have to go check this out. <laughs> okay, um, music you can't live without. Uh, Carrie Newcomer is number one. Okay. Uh, I have to listen to her. Uh, Robbie Gill and George Harrison. Awesome. Yeah. Dijon or Stone Ground. Dijon. <laughs> yeah, simple girl, simple girl. Yeah. Current, current Netflix binges. If you're doing that, so many, so many. I'm like a sick. Girl. Yeah, I'm a sick girl. I watch a lot. Of, I watch a lot of TV. I fired through them. Um, Grace and Frankie, one of my favorites. Frankie and Grace. I forget which way it goes, I but I love. Yeah, Grace and Frankie. Frankie. Yeah. Grace and Frankie. Yeah, yeah. Grace and Frankie. Sabrina. Oh, yeah. Supergirl. Once Upon a Time and Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries is one oh. of my favorite shows i've binged it several times over and over it's australian it's amazing my headphones are named friday and dot over because of the lead characters so this is friday (laughs) i name and i name inanimate objects all the time that that i love that's how much i love the show is yeah miss fisher's murder mystery we have to talk about the pinky that you named. Oh, happy. my pinky, happy. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> happy. That was that's my and favorite I, paragraph. So yeah, 
people like that one. Yeah, because my my right pinky finger doesn't hurt often. So yeah, when everything else hurts, my right finger is okay. So I still sometimes yeah. paint it and I focus on it and sometimes I type with it. Yeah. She wrote for any of you listening or watching. She wrote to her pinky finger how much she appreciated it. It's great. You got to read it. Okay, um, Zach Morris or AC Slater. Zach Morris, um, but only because he grew up to become Miles Dufine in the ABC Family Twelve Dates of Christmas, which is an amazing, <laughs> which is an amazing Christmas movie that was on Netflix. It's not on Netflix anymore. Now it's on. I think maybe it was on Hulu this year, but it's on ABC Family. I, I ended up having to. I've seen it forty times. It was my like comfort movie when I was a private cook, and I watch. It's like I love it, and it's with Amy Smart and Mark Paul Gosler. Oh, and he he acts his heart out on this script. It is. I'm a nerd for Christmas, and I it is my one of my favorite Christmas movies. So Zach Morris all the way because of yeah. Okay, well that's a good enough reason I think I've got to check this movie out. Apparently, I love this movie. I watch it year round. <laughs> Twelve Dates of Christmas. Okay, Twelve Dates of Christmas. There we go. We've got yeah. some homework to do. Um, most obnoxious thing said to you in the past week? Uh, we don't know what happened. I don't have health insurance right now and uh, it was a glitch in a system. And so it's been day, I don't know. It's, it's, we're recording this on the 25th of the month and I have not had health insurance for 25 days and I've been fighting a system. It's a glitch in a system. So yeah, we don't know what happened. Wow. uh, Yeah. So that's, or I guess, or can I put you on hold or anything Uh involving that system? That better change you. He's got it all figured out. Yeah. Um, Okay. Current mantra. Um, be the real unicorn. Hmm. I like yeah. that. It's good. What are your, yeah. what are you currently reading? Um, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Okay. What's that about? She is, she is a, uh, a botanist and mm-hmm. a member of the citizen Potawatomi nation. And so she has this beautiful book. It's like a love song to nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the idea of that plants and animals are our oldest teachers. And it's just a really, Aww. really beautiful, beautiful book. That sounds amazing. I'll put that in the show notes because I'm going to look that one up too. It's really good. It's okay. really beautiful. Um, favorite quote. This is close to mantra. So, but if, if you've got something different, yeah. go for it. It's a, yeah, it's a mantra as well. Um, be here now, George Harrison. Yes. It's always works for me. Love it. Uh, beach or mountains? Mountains. Okay. Um, you have five minutes to live. What do you do? What do you say? Who do you call? If I'm with someone, if it's like a cataclysmic thing and someone is afraid and they need comforting, then I comfort that person. Okay. If it's not, um, then I just sit and look and feel and wait. Um, everybody in my life knows that I love them. Everybody I'm ready whenever it happens. And I want to experience that moment. I want to be prepared for it. I want to embrace it. I want to feel it. I don't want to be, uh, afraid or distracted when it comes. I want to, I want to embrace my death. Um, so everybody in my life knows how I feel about them. I have no, no unfinished business or, or goodbyes left. Uh, mm-hmm. So I just want to 
look out with marvel and thanks for this weird wonderful beautiful mm-hmm. world that <laughs> something created for us mm-hmm. um and then feel what it like what it's like to leave it because nobody can really really tell us really describe what that is for us and we can't understand that until we go through it so i just want to i want to be there in my body when it happens you you're not going to be surfing social media at the time. <laughs> Wouldn't that be ironic, though? Yeah. What if I was like, "Wait, hold on, I want to, I want to Facebook Live it." <laughs> hold on, hey guys, hey guys, I'm dying right now. Three minutes, three minutes. Sorry, I really took that. Oh, that was a beautiful sentiment that you had. No, I love it. I love it. No, I love it. Meditate through death, but you know that would be kind of amazing if <laughs> if you had one last tweet. Oh boy. All right. Well, Jacqueline, this has been so much fun. Before we go though, um, I want everyone to know where to find you. So websites, uh, first let's say your book, your book is available anywhere you can buy a book, right? So Amazon, Barnes and Noble. The Me Without a Year Exploring Habit, Healing and Happiness, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, IndieBound, Google, Target, Walmart, those places. Um, yeah. Okay. Awesome. And then if they want to find you, uh, <laughs> social media. <laughs> yeah. So I'm JacquelineRaposo.com. And then on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at words, food, art. And then on Facebook, Jacqueline Raposo writer. Okay. And I will put those down in the show notes too, so they can link thank to you. you. So thank you so much for agreeing to this interview. Thank you for having me. Uh, you are just a lovely person and your book is incredible and everyone needs to go buy it and find Jacqueline not scrolling for an hour. Go find her, follow her, like her picture, get off. <laughs> and message me. Like I email people back. Yeah. 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 That's how we connected on. Exactly. Instagram, yeah. So. Right. chat me up yeah. yeah good all right well you have a lovely rest of the day relax thank you you too thanks this so much lovely this nice lovely. to see your so face much. nice to see yours too yeah. and your voice <laughs> all right yeah. talk to you all right okay yeah. bye, bye.